This is episode 14 with Dow Orion on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. What is ecosystem restoration and what are some common challenges of living off the grid? Dow Orion, author, teacher, and mother, shares her personal experience with us on today's episode of Ancestral Health Radio. This was a fun chat for sure because someday in the near future, I'd like to purchase land and start a family myself. So we discuss the need for a more holistic approach to land restoration, the medicinal properties of certain invasive plant species, and what tending the wild versus plow-based agriculture looks like. In today's episode, you'll also learn why your pastured eggs may be supplemented with grain, the invasive species that can heal a common antibiotic-resistant strain of bacteria, questions to consider before transitioning to land or rural property of your own, and much, much more. Dow Ryan is the author of Beyond the War on Invasive Species, a permaculture approach to ecosystem restoration. She teaches permaculture design at Oregon State University and at Aprovecho, a 40-acre nonprofit sustainable living educational organization. Dow consults on holistic farm, forest, and restoration planning through Resilience Permaculture Design, LLC. She holds a degree in agroecology and sustainable agriculture from UC Santa Cruz and grows organic fruits, vegetables, seeds, nuts, and animals on her southern Willamette Valley homestead, Veriditas Farm. Uh, Thank you for joining us here on Ancestral Health Radio today, Dow. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited that we finally got all this together. I know that we had a little bit of going back and forth, and I know that we've been pretty busy, but... I think today's going to be an exciting episode because, like I mentioned to you earlier, we have a, at least I feel like in uh, building this transition culture, someone who's just really diving into all this, I've got a lot to learn from somebody like yourself. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm excited to share what I know and my experience. So Maybe we want to start right there. What is ecosystem restoration? Well, that's a great question. And it's um, kind of a central tenet of my book is asking exactly what we are talking about when we're thinking about restoration. Is there a particular time frame or ecological type or character that we are trying to move back to? Is that really even possible? And instead, should we be kind of focusing on the future of improving ecosystem qualities and functionality? Um, That's really where I think the, the future of restoration is is in um, creating really high quality habitat and really functional ecosystems that support not only human life, but all non-human life. That's another big question that comes to my mind too, when I think about when I wanna purchase land for myself and I wanna start something of my own, is I think about like all the people that might be listening to this podcast and is there enough land for all of us to sustainably live off of? Yeah, and that's a really good question. I think, you know, there's a few different angles to look at it um, from. 
one of them is it really doesn't take that much land in terms of area to grow a, a large proportion of your own uh, vegetable food, at least. Um, and then I think there's a lot of really interesting kind of ideas or models coming forward about managing larger tracts of land communally or in a cooperative model mm. to grow things like animal products um, that aren't necessarily as readily you know, accessible in an urban or suburban type of environment. Um, I think there's a lot that could be done there without everybody having to kind of move out to a more rural uh, location and have their own kind of whole setup as an individual family unit. So um, although I think that there's a lot of potential there as well, you know, there's been so much movement towards urban centers over the past hundred years or so and away from agrarian kind of enterprises, there's a lot of land um, out there and it kind of just depends on where you want to live and, and find yourself, find your community. Right, and and some of the uh, you want to be aware of some of the laws too, right? As far as what you can do and and how far you want. I mean, I guess coming from a like an off the grid kind of perspective, I guess you know the, some of those things are important to look at as well too. Yeah, definitely. I know you know in Oregon, it's uh, land use laws are quite strict in terms of you can really only have a single family residence on your property even if it's uh, upwards of 40 acres. Oh, wow, that's, okay. And that's a lot of land to manage. For one person, yeah. Yeah, as a single-family unit. And, you know, there's been, there's work to kind of address some of those. Um, I would say they're kind of inequalities. Like it's, you know, really, if a person is intensively planting and managing half an acre, um, that's... A full-time job. You know what? What does that look like exactly? So if you if you do manage to find yourself a good plot of land and you have an acre to an acre and a half, maybe three acres, what what does managing that land even look like? Well, I mean, I think it kind of depends on your um, diet <laughs> and what you're hoping to get out of it. Again, the vegetable fruit kind of component is a relatively small um, land area, even to provide you know, the 80, 90 to 100% of your own um, vegetables, it's not really that challenging once you've done it for a while or had some practice or, you know, there's some really good uh, planning, like garden planning applications out there that can show you just how much space you need. Um, when it comes to animal husbandry, that's a little bit different and yeah, that's a little more challenging. I was more. wondering about that because I had a question. You know, my friend, he's over the weekend, he's going to his girlfriend's father's ranch, I believe, and he's taking care of it for the weekend. And I was mentioning goats. You know, I was saying something about how, you know, I wouldn't mind having some goats. <laughs> and he said that, um, well, goats take up a lot of space, you know, you're going to have to have some space to take up just for goats. And I was like, really just some little goats. I wonder how much land it actually takes because, you know, again, this is all news to me. I'm, I'm still learning about this. I have no idea how much land you would need for say, a, you know, uh, a dairy cow or, you know, a couple goats to, to whatever you might want to have. I know, I know chickens don't especially take up very much land, but I, I don't know how much other animals would would actually take up or, or what 
what that would look like. Well, I think it's, it's interesting because I've raised all different kinds of animals. And, you know, chickens, I, I think, appear to not take that much land. But oh, okay. people, pretty much everybody, even Joel Salatin, you know, of, who does a lot of really high-quality um, meat and animal products, feeds his chickens grain. Oh. Um, and it's, and especially a northern temperate climate, it's really hard to get away from that. Um, and have eggs or meat come out of them in a kind of productive manner. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't even know that. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of like a hidden side of it is like you can have this whole system and, you know, my chickens eat all my scraps from my kitchen and, um, they forage, you know, a hundred percent of the time, but they still grain supplement to produce eggs. Oh, but they do need a, a supplement like grain to to actually produce eggs. Yeah. Oh. At, at the at the quantity that my family eats. <laughs> okay, so a, a chicken that lays eggs naturally, just foraging off of the land versus and eating your scraps versus one that is supplemented with grain. How often would one with the grain produce eggs versus the one that did it? Yeah, I would say you know daily for up to two years if they're getting a supplement. Um. And if they're not getting it, because I've tried all different kinds of things and different experiments. I've raised black soldier fly larvae, which are a, um, a large grub that actually eats your compost. And then you can feed the grubs to chickens. Um, and there are people, especially in warmer climates, California would probably do better than here. Um, who are successfully feeding their chickens with those instead of grain. Um, and, you know, but if, if you're not feeding them, you might get an egg once a week or so. Oh, well, I had no idea. An egg, one egg a week if it's just eating its natural diet. Yeah, and they eat a lot. I mean, they're, they're kind of like out, you know, eating your garden unless you're... Um, Unless it's well protected. <laughs> wow. Okay. So there, there is quite a bit of work going into it. You don't just whip up a chicken coop real quick, throw you know, and, and just move them around from time to time. You know, it takes a lot more than that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of surprising. However, like now I have sheep, and um, they're just out there eating grass all winter long. I've bought a couple of bales of hay because we don't quite have our hay rotation set up in a way that works for them. But really, I've only bought, you know, like five bales from the same valley where I live. Um, And I could easily replace that over time with stuff that I grow from this particular property. And there are a variety of sheep that provides wool and meat and milk. Um, So that's great. I've also raised pigs. They eat a huge amount of grain. Um, you know, I love pork, but I I backed away from raising raising uh, pigs because of that. I really don't like buying all of the grain, and the you know it's really hard to get a soy free seed. Uh, and I don't like to eat soy. Mm-hmm. I don't like my animals to eat soy. Um, so the expense becomes. Uh, kind of a hindrance. 
probably a lot easier to just go hunt a wild boar and get that wild protein from your landscape than, say, actually raise a domesticated version or a pig. And it just might be too much work to do it that way. Whereas you might, if you want some regular bacon, it might be better to go support the person that, that's actually doing the work. Yeah, I would say so. I think, you know, that's, I think the hunting question in terms of population, you know, sustainable management, I, I am not sure that there is enough wild game to support um, you know, the population. Everyone, yeah, no, absolutely not. For now, yeah, I think it's a great um, resource. Around where we are, there aren't wild boars. There's a lot of deer and some elk. Um, but that's kind of the major game um, that hunters are getting. There are some concerns about uh, pesticide contamination around in Oregon because of all of the, the forest practices that are pretty heavily involved in the use of um, herbicide, especially. And that's where these guys are grazing. Um, so I'm a little bit concerned about that. But And what are you concerned exactly about? And, and maybe you want to go in a little deeper about that. With herbicide contamination? Yeah, because I've heard that even in some places, just to manage the weeds, they're spraying everything down. So even as you're hiking, I mean, you're, you could be getting contaminated or however it is if you're foraging in some of your favorite spots they could be contaminated with with pesticides is is that right yeah yeah it's a huge um issue and one that i don't think many people are aware of at least i wasn't you know, especially before writing my book where i was kind of looking at quote weed management um on larger scale so outside of kind of the farm scale but the landscape scale um, there's some pretty, I think in the kind of maybe more conventional paradigm, like herbicides are considered like more benign than other pesticides, like insecticides where you actually see like a dead insect and you can imagine that that might be bad for you to eat. Right. Um, herbicides are different and, but it's interesting, you know, as an animal, like we are, we're our whole life is based on plants, uh, whether we eat them or whether we eat things that eat them. And so a lot of these chemicals change the DNA of plants um, and kill, you know, end up killing them over time. Or like in the case of glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, which is a very commonly used herbicide in lawns and parks, um, as well as forest settings, potent, you know, nature, natural settings. Um, glyphosate has been shown to be a probable human carcinogen. It's also, um, the way that it works is it disables a plant's immune system, and it causes them to be susceptible to diseases that are in the soil already. So it doesn't actually kill them, but it kills their immune system. Oh, and this okay. is really important because... The pathway that glyphosate works on, it, it occurs in both plants and bacteria. So it kills beneficial bacteria. And this is like some really interesting research that's starting to come out. Everybody's like, oh, it's safe. It's totally fine. You know, you can drink the stuff. But right. it kills um, lactobacillus. It kills um, 
like bifidobacteria, the ones, the good bacteria that are in our gut too, that make our immune systems function, are also being killed. And it's not necessarily an acute um, toxicity that we might notice, but over time, the rising tide of autoimmune diseases, um, you know, asthma, even heart disease, diabetes, like all of these things that are afflictions in our population right now, um, I think to some degree or other can be traced back to the widespread use of some of these compounds that are altering our the literal kind of inner landscape of our bodies. So it's a big issue. Is there anything that we listening can do about that? Is there something that we can do to mitigate those effects somehow? Because that, that seems like a pretty big concern, right? Glyphosate is everywhere now. So if it changes the DNA and is destroying the microbiome or the soil microbes, that's pretty bad news. I think, you know, for people who are getting into foraging or, you know, um, spending more time, even hunting, you know, out in these areas that are managed by the BLM or managed by, you know, your regional park district, um, having a, initiating a conversation with the people who are managing that land and say, hey, do you guys use herbicide? Hmm. When and why? And um, can we talk about that? And, you know, a lot of places are, they all, everybody does it. But, um, you know, I think some, depending on where you live in California, the, there are some parks districts that are well aware that there's public concern about this and have made an effort to reduce their use or look into other alternatives. Um, but one of the things that I think is kind of on the other side of the issue is that the, the flip side is that these spaces require management. They require people interacting with them. So it's kind of changing our perspective about how we think of like parks or public lands as these places that we just kind of walk through mm -hmm. um, to places that we can have an active stewardship relationship with. That's something that we've lost along the way, most definitely. I mean, I'm struggling still, you know, I'm learning and I'm still trying to figure out the local plant life. A lifelong practice, <laughs> for sure. Let's talk about this, that so-called quote-unquote weeds. A lot of these invasive species seem to be highly medicinal. Yeah, I mean... Like, like for example, Japanese knotweed, isn't that an extremely invasive species? Yes, that's a big one. That's a concern in many states. Uh, here in Oregon, it's, you know, top 10, um, as well as in the Northeast. That plant has is one of the only plants found so far that has a compound that actively um, can kill the spirochete that causes Lyme disease. Oh, and that's also important. I thought I saw a tick actually from foraging yesterday, I thought I saw a tick on one of my clothing earlier, but it just happened to be a really small spider. So, but anyways, I'm always on the lookout for those. Yeah, it's becoming more and more of an issue everywhere, um, Lyme disease. And uh, so, you know, knowing things like that and knowing that at least the herbal protocol uh, contains significant amounts of Japanese knotweed root, it kind of leads to uh, saying, well, maybe instead of spraying this knotweed, which is what kind of everybody does in kind of the land management sphere, 
and it mostly grows along waterways. Um, there could be kind of a market developed for people to go in there and hand manage it by digging out the root. Um, actually, too, the root contains uh, it's a very potent source of resveratrol, yeah. which uh, you know has become really popular yeah. now uh, for treating like heart disease and. When you look at like a, a pill container of resveratrol, you know people say, "Oh, you should just drink a glass of red wine or whatever." Um, this contains this much resveratrol. Um, if you go to buy the actual supplement, it's not great. That's right. in the bottle of resveratrol. It's Japanese stuff um, because that has even more than anything really. And that um, supplement is so there's expensive. Some great uh, just, just saying. I mean, that supplement expensive. is also very expensive off the shelf if you were to buy it. But as yeah. as you're saying, you could go forward some of the stuff and possibly make your own. Is that even possible, yeah, or would you? Con- okay, and yeah, because I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure how you would wild wildcraft that. Digging up the root of Japanese knotweed is not easy, <laughs> but um, you know, once you have it out, you can uh, pull, dry it, and pulverize it make it into a tincture or just encapsulate it. You know, that's basically what they're doing with those pills that you see at the store. Um, And yeah, there's many, many others, you know, that have various um, uh, beneficial effects. I just was reading uh, this. There's a plant called Brazilian pepper, which is considered invasive all throughout Florida. It's all in the Everglades, and people are, you know, kind of freaking out. And they've been spraying it all throughout the Everglades for years. Um, but an ethnobotanist just found that the traditional use of the berries of that um, tree are um, are used to treat like skin infections. And she actually isolated the compound and found that um, the the particular chemical that's present in these berries can actually treat uh, MRSA staph, oh, like wow. multi-drug-resistant re- staph uh, on on the skin, and that's like a huge, huge issue, you know, nowadays in the conventional medicine world. Um, so having something like that, that it doesn't act in the same way as an antibiotic, but it actually disables the functionality of those uh, drug-resistant bacteria to actually replicate. So, um, potent, potent medicinal. Um, and here everybody's out spraying, you know, spraying these trees. So, again, kind of putting those, seeing the potential solutions embedded in some of these things that we think of as problems and thinking about how we could potentially approach the issue differently and creatively. So there's lots of yields, um, including economic and, you know, beneficial for humans as well, but it ends up being beneficial for everybody because right. nobody, nobody wants to swim around and like the state. <laughs> Maybe that's what we need to be doing is just cultivating this type of plant and nature awareness about our our ecology and our bioregion specifically exactly what are the what are the plants what are the weeds what what are the animals the fauna in our bioregion that 
that we need to know about or just identify. Like you said, it's a lifelong practice and we need to be doing that on a, on a daily. It's something that we need to be learning so that we can teach to our kids and our kids can teach that to theirs. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so critical because, you know, what else is there really to, to know in the world? And it's, it's so heartening to me having a almost four year old, you know, who can identify plants and he knows what he can eat out on the land. And it's, it's just so, it's so nice to feel that that is happening on its own little small scale. I think also, you know, as you magnify kind of up to a larger scale, like thinking about invasive species, if we can start to read the landscape and understand why they are growing where they are and be able to kind of look at land use history as a really kind of telling indicator of why something might be present um, now. I think that that's a huge um, part of the framework that even conventional restoration uh, biologists, and I've talked to many of them, they don't really see it that way. They think like invasive species are kind of like this random occurrence of, of this threatening plant or animal, but they don't see the whole picture or take into account that, you know, colonization of this continent by European people was a huge, uh, huge change. And all the things that have rippled out of that are important to contextualize when we're looking at current plant communities. And so mm -hmm. from grazing, you know, of releasing pigs into the, the everywhere um, to massive reduction and, you know, genocide of indigenous people and prohibiting the types of land management that they undertook to have certain types of plants available in their diet. Right. Because these people knew, they knew from tradition that, that these are the plants that, that helped them succeed and create a strong lineage, right? And that's something that Europeans knew nothing about coming to this new land. No, not at all. I mean, European agriculture is annual agriculture. And mm -hmm. that's what people who came over here originally were kind of tuned into. They were looking for that and they didn't see it in very many places. And so they thought, oh, well, this land just isn't being managed. It looked wild to them, I'm sure. Well, it looked like a park. Um, you know, if you've read uh, Tending the Wild by Kat Anderson, which is about California, indigenous management, you know, these statements of people coming there, European people coming there for the first time, they're just like, oh, there's these wide open meadows with, you know, these giant oak trees and these park-like settings and um, all of these deer and so many um, fish and waterfowl and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, there's a reason for that. It's yeah, <laughs> exactly. But what, what are the biggest differences between traditional agriculture, European agriculture versus possibly the Native Americans, the indigenous people here to this land actually used, which was what you were mentioning earlier, at least in California in, in Kat Anderson's book, Tending the Wild. What, what are the biggest differences there? People relied mostly on fire to clear land and to kind of 
reset succession of largely perennial plants um, that they were using either directly for their diet or cultural needs like milkweed um, for fiber or dog bane for fiber. Those were big kind of highly managed crops in California. Also managing perennial grasslands for the huge herds of deer and elk that used to be there. People, especially, well, all throughout North America, really, nobody went into the ground, dug up iron, and smelted it into hard metal. Like, But people did do that in Europe and in Eastern Asia. And they made plows um, in those areas. They used that technology to turn, you know, to rip open the soil, turn it over, and facilitate the growth of annual, mostly annual plants, like potatoes and um, grain, uh, wheat and oats and barley and lentils and all these kind of staple crops that came from southwestern Europe, the Fertile Crescent area like Iraq and Iran, all the way into India, China, rice, culture, another annual plant. This was all plow-based agriculture, and that just didn't happen um, in North America. And it's not that people didn't understand the concept that you could do that. Um, their management strategy was different, and where there were annual plants, like um, by the time Europeans came to the Northeast, a lot of people were growing corn and beans and squash. What? But they, they weren't using metal implements. They weren't using domestic animals to pull the plow. That's another kind of interesting uh, All right, difference. because then you're having to domesticate animals also to be pulling the plow as well too, right? Yep, which is what happened in Europe and um, Eastern Asia. So the cow, the ox, um, the horse largely became kind of um, associated with people because of their work potential. <laughs> they could pull those heavy things and break up that soil. What are some of the big issues that are happening with traditional agriculture today? And, and what are the, some of the things that we can use, like, like tending to the wild? What, what, what exactly does that do for us? Well, I would say it's probably the biggest issue that's not talked about in many circles yet, but I think should be discussed more. Um, when it comes to tillage-based agriculture is carbon uh, mm, loss. Um, one of the things that happens when you open up the soil is you introduce air, oxygen, and a lot of the bacteria that are in the soil use that as a fuel. They, they use the carbon in the soil as a fuel to uh, reproduce, and they off-gas CO2, carbon dioxide, so every time you're tilling, you're releasing CO2. And there are some researchers who are saying, you know, agriculture as we know it currently is producing more CO2 than all the cars on the road, all the coal-fired power plants, uh, because there's such a huge land area planet-wide um, that is tilled up every year, this massive carbon... Um, source is just kind of going up into the atmosphere 
And unless you're really focusing on capturing that carbon and putting it back into the soil, which many organic farmers, that's kind of a central tenet of what, how they just run their, their operations. Mm -hmm. um, they use compost, they use cover crops, they use different techniques to uh, mitigate that carbon loss and even start building carbon back into the soil. Um, but, you know, by and large, <laughs> that's not happening on a, on a big enough scale. But there are people who say if we were to increase uh, worldwide the percentage of organic matter in the soil by 1%, we would take all of the carbon out of the atmosphere that is currently there. So if we would actually focus on soil building practices as an agricultural society, that would, <laughs> that would be really helpful. Um, one of those, I think, is looking at indigenous management, especially, I think, when it comes to animal-based agriculture. Um, because one of the huge, especially in the, in the States, and even, you know, Brazil and other countries, um, so much land is dedicated to growing annual grains and beans for animals to eat, like cows, um, that it's just insane, really, when you look at it. Like, for me, driving across the country, like through the what were the prairie states, through the Midwest, and all you can see for hundreds of miles is corn and soy. Right. And all of that used to be perennial grassland, where buffalo, you know, numbered in the hundreds of millions, and antelope and elk and deer. I mean, and then we have these cows and feedlots that are so unhealthy, producing really poor quality food for people. Um, and, you know, it, the distinction to me couldn't be more stark. It's like, put those animals on perennial pasture, restore the prairies, put them back out there where they want to be. You know, that's where cows, want, they want to be eating grass. Sheep. Exactly. They don't want to be eating corn and soy, you know? Yeah, no, they have they have something called a rumen. Yeah. It, it's it's biological. They need to be u utilizing grasses for that rumen. So it's it, just that's a huge thing for me. I just like you know, only I only eat grass fed meat, you know, I raise some of what I eat. I buy some from people I know who are of the same mind, but I think, you know, for more people to start seeing those connections and changing their um, buying practices, you know, what when we're talking about different scales of engagement, like, that's a, that's one that could really go far, you know, to support people who are keeping that carbon in the ground, keeping the ground cover intact, building soil, not relying on feed that's coming from plow-based agriculture. Um, that's a huge, huge thing that we could all be doing. Is, is there any way that we can bring some of this knowledge, like, down a scale, and we can bring some of this into our own homes? Like, is, I mean, is there any way for me, being an urbanite, um, you know, I'm in my little apartment here, is there anything that I can do in my apartment that I can start 
using any of these practices immediately from, I mean, it could be anything from growing uh, some vegetables on my patio to, to herbs or anything, but is there anything that you, you might recommend? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, looking around your own personal space and like seeing what really make, what could make sense for you to like in permaculture, we talk about moving from a mindset of being a consumer to having a mindset of being a producer. Mm. Um, what does it make sense for you to produce, whether that's on your balcony, maybe you have a um, community garden in your area, or maybe it means, you know, engaging with like the broader scale with your, the, the parks department and figuring out, you know, how could you encourage work with people who, you know, work there to encourage patches of nettles and make, <laughs> harvesting those kinds of things more normal and accessible. Um, there's lots of different things I think that could be explored depending on your skills and interests. And I think even, you know, spending a little bit of time uh, engaged in stewarding something <laughs> like uh, plants or small animals is just such a great practice, you know, of the daily attention and seeing them through their life cycles and addressing different issues that come up. Um, it's all so much a part of human history, you know, to be doing stuff like that. So I really recommend for people who live in urban areas, like start a worm bin, like you mentioned, vermicomposting. I think that that's a great way of doing some animal husbandry that also yields you some really high quality compost that you could use in your garden. Um, it's really great to get to develop those kinds of relationships, even with, you know, something like a worm or put a beehive up on your, your roof or something like that. There's lots of little things, depending on your interests, that you could decide to do. So, you know, I think taking those kinds of steps to just mitigate our dependence on kind of the corporate culture um, are helpful. That's that's at least my take on it. Like any little thing that we can do, you know, it's just becoming more self-sufficient, right? Yeah, yeah. Been really getting into mushrooms recently, and that's something that that I've been actually pretty successful with. It's cool to find like those the hooks or the things that you know lead you further down a path of discovery. You know, of from like an interest in edible mushrooms to understanding more about your local ecosystem yeah it's it's cool how it all just ties in together like that and and it's it's so it's so core to like you said earlier being human and who we are and it's it's just crazy that through centuries you could just build huge lineages and traditions and then in you know a very short period of time you can lose all that yeah yeah in the willamette valley where i live you know their researchers believe that 80 to 90 percent of the population died over the course of, you know, three three seasons. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that's just from a kind of cultural memory perspective. That's just a huge blow. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I said, I, I want to purchase some land, you know, like I want to be able to do that. And I live in California and I live where you went to school at, and I, I'm not sure if you grew up here too, but on the other side of Santa Cruz in San Jose. And it's, 
like incredibly difficult to find any land and, and this is it's so beautiful here but it's just so expensive it's hard for me to know where to look or what to look for and w what would be good conditions and things like that and i know it's dependent on on each individual but for me i love um for example ancient growth redwoods and big trees and a lot of foliage and that's kind of my thing and i've just you know i've been having the hardest time trying to figure out exactly how I want to upgrade my personal environment. Basically, this is the the plan for me and my girlfriend. We want to move out of this apartment, invest in a tiny house, and purchase some some land until we can save up some money to build our own little our own little shack on our land. You know, so we want to eventually get to where you are. But through that, it, there's that huge huge process, and I'm not even sure. Would you have any suggestions for somebody who want want to make that kind of leap? from your own personal experience, how, how we might go about looking into doing something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think a really important piece still and something that, you know, I think has tempered my idealism of after owning land, you know, getting getting it and yeah, now living know. where I keeping or really kind of examining your economic options. Um, for the place that you decide to live, like what are you going to do? Because it still costs a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, you know, yes. sort of the context that we're in, and it's almost impossible to get away from that. So, really having a good plan in place for how you're going to continue to support your livelihood, um, even if it's different, you know, or you're in a different line of work, but. Considering that when you're looking at locations as well, um, whether you plan to work from home or still commute, you know, for time or whatever it is, um, it can be a really important point because it's going to be, unless you're independently wealthy, it's going to be really hard to just have enough money saved up for the rest of your life. See, yeah, that's um, that's a big point that that you know I don't really think about too much, and that's something that I'm actually going to bring up on another episode. Um, with my friend Jonathan Mead is exactly how do you create more freedom and space to rewild your your environment and your lifestyle. So for me, it, I'm, I'm kind of fortunate. I'm lucky. And right now I work in a warehouse, but my side, my quote unquote side hustle or whatever you want to call it is, you know, my, my real passion is doing this is speaking to people like you and learning more about how we can take care of ourselves and our environment and how we can place ourselves more in alignment with natural ecology and natural law. And that's, that's where I feel most at home. And that's what the podcast is all about. So I, I don't even think about it because I know that eventually I want to start making money with the podcast and that podcast is online, which allows me a lot of freedom to kind of work location independently. So, um, that's a big picture that, you know what, for a lot of the audience that that is a, a very, very great question to ask yourself when just starting off is, is definitely, you know, how are you going to be making money in, in the commute and how far or how rurally do you want to live? Right. Yeah, and I think really spending some time <clears throat> examining the community around you because, you know, you're going to kind of land out in a place like where we are. Um, many of the people who are our neighbors are different in terms of their, like, political viewpoints um, from us. And that, however, they're the people that are here. And, you know, I think it's 
it's important to be able to think about that beforehand if that's important to you, but also to be able to forge relationships with people um, wherever you go. Because, you know, in the event of a disaster or some kind of downturn, those are the people that you're going to be uh, surrounded by, if not relying on, um, for your continued survival. So it's it's important to kind of think about that. Because I'm also, you know, I'm from Santa Cruz, but, but rural Oregon is, is different. <laughs> it's a different right. uh, place. And so that's been challenging for me in some ways, but also rewarding. Maybe we'll end with that question right there is what... What has been the biggest challenge for you since beginning your your homesteading practice? Um, I would say figuring out the balance of of um, working off site with being able to spend the energy that um, it takes to develop my site and my kind of livelihood. Um, here on my, my farm. Yeah, that, that is the biggest piece right there for most people, huh? Is how do you make money living in a rural area as well as when you do create a permaculture designer or even if you're just, you know, doing small homesteading things or if you have, you're doing animal husbandry, you know, it's going to take a lot more of your time, right? You can't just, if you want, you, can't, you couldn't just possibly go take a vacation because not all, nobody I'm sure you know, or I'm sure you possibly know people, but the, the average person isn't going to know somebody else that can go over to their, their homestead and take care of their animals for them, I feel like. No, you can't leave. I mean, <laughs> that's a, it's a different lifestyle. Like you, you have to be able to, even to leave for a night, you have to have somebody or somebody's that you can call who knows what to do and who's potentially going to be responsible for your animals getting out and getting into your neighbor's property and you know it gets a little bit crazy <laughs> and it's stressful but it's a different you know at the same time there's also all of the other benefits and you know we don't have a very highly consumptive lifestyle so we don't need to make a huge amount of money but that uh tension i think is definitely still there right I'd love to be going out and doing more foraging trips and stuff like that, but it doesn't always, especially with kids, I mean, then it becomes this whole other um, dynamic that, you know, it just gets a little more complicated and you kind of wish for, or at least I've wished a lot for a village, you know, or a culture in which those kinds of things are just kind of happening and I don't have to make it all happen myself. It's not more difficult when it's on an individual level or a smaller scale because yeah. that's something that we talk about in previous podcasts as well too is that you know it's going to be difficult even for a smaller group or family environment you need more of a, a tribal or community a gathering you know a group of people working together synonymously yeah that would be really helpful and you know around here we have a lot of friends and a good community but it still isn't it's not <laughs> It's not the same, and it's 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 hard to find that. But you know, it's it's the work of many generations, I think, to re very true claim that and just chart the path forward. You know what it is? It's just like you said earlier. It's a lifelong process, and you're 
having to relearn the things that that were gener- so generational to us as a species. You're having to relearn so many of these fundamental uh, things that connect you with the land. And really, when you when you have your own little spot, I guess it forces you to deepen your relationship with your land. Yeah, you're much more influenced by it, and um, you're much more aware of you know every little change in the weather. It's like, okay. <laughs> What does this mean? What the, what is what do I have to do next? You know? I, I love that idea because you know what? I've, for me personally, I struggle with overstimulation here. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just so much going on that it's like the one thing I yearn for, you know, for me is I want space. You know, having grown up in suburbia pretty much my entire life, for me, I'm just like, man, I, I just want to go outside. I just want to go outside all the time. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, and I'm sure someone in your position is, you know, you, you know, you're, you're never like, oh, I, I want to go hiking. No, you, you, <laughs> you step outside in your backyard is the forest. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, things definitely, definitely change. Perspectives change. Yeah. So, so Dow, um, real quick, if people want to catch up with your work and what you have going on, where can people reach out to you? Well, I have a Facebook page for my book, uh, uh, beyond the war I think is the, the handle but just beyond the war and invasive species you can look it up and I post things there um, I also have an author page because I am working on another book oh it's exciting um, but yeah and then I have uh, just my my website for my consulting business is resiliencepermaculture.com and those three things are all kind of connected through the various social media portals. Absolutely, and I'll make sure all those are linked up in the show notes so that everybody has those. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating and review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network, or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com. Yeah.